0: This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sansini, and Silverlake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kong, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue Series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to the Dialogue. In 2016, a group of nonprofit CEOs came together to explore how to put equity at the center of their organizations and how to navigate the sometimes challenging conversations that accompany significant cultural change. ALF was invited in to facilitate this CEO Diversity, Inclusion, Equity, Liberation Affinity Group, whose journey has been transformative for the members and their organizations. Joining me today are the group's founding members, Senior Fellows Shiloh Ballard. Executive Director of the Silicon Valley Bicycle Coalition, Pancho Guevara, Executive Director of Sacred Heart Community Service, and Chris Wilder, CEO of the Valley Medical Center Foundation. Today, they'll share their origin story, impact to date, and their hopes for scaling the learnings. Let's listen. So, Chris, Poncho, and Shiloh, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Pleasure.
0: Great to have you in the space. I know you're not on the orange couches, but, you know, <laughs> this is a close second, right? <laughs> it's good. Shiloh, why don't we start with you? Where did the work of the CEO DIEL group start for you?
2: Yeah, so uh, when I originally came into my role at the Bike Coalition, running the organization, for a variety of reasons, I had an interest in centering equity in the organization's work. And I was a brand new executive director and I didn't know how to do a lot of things. And that is one of them. Um, So I immediately started reaching out to folks to ask them, uh, how does an executive director go about centering equity in their work? Um, And for the Bike Coalition, this is an important question because um, there's lots of examples that I can use where You know, we are not meeting our goal of 10% of trips by 2025. We're not on track to meet that. Right. Um, And when you look at the demographics of who's riding, it becomes very clear that Mm. we're never going to get to that goal if the work that we're doing is only attracting a certain segment of the community. So from a business case perspective, it was very clear that we need to, to better understand you know, what are we doing right and wrong in terms of meeting that goal? And then, of course, there's the moral imperative side of it, that this is just the right thing to be doing. Um, so I, I set about reaching out to good people in the world that run nonprofits and asking them, hey, how, how do you do this? What's what's the playbook? And I found out, um, at least for the folks that I was reaching out to, there was not a playbook. Um, and so I then... Um, stumbled across one of our partner organizations, Bike East Bay, and they were well down the road of looking at this question. They had found that um, despite their best intentions of um, trying to deliberately recruit a diverse board, they they were successful in recruiting um, diverse folks to their board, and they were unsuccessful in keeping those folks on the board. And mm-hmm. so it caused them to do a bunch of self reflection amongst their board members. And so they brought in a consultant. Um, That consultant curated a bunch of readings. And um, that leads me to answer your question, which was, I then got a hold of these readings and started um, reading them all and became very uncomfortable (laughs) with Mm -hmm. how they were making me feel. I needed people to process this stuff
3: with. She wanted because, to make other people uncomfortable. Too. Exactly.
0: Have <laughs> Just I completely love no. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, it is part of the origin story here of this group coming together, there was a thought of, well, maybe you know, we as white people should sit together and wrestle with this. At what point did you all decide that "Eh, this is something that we need to be in community on and actually learn from each other on and bringing in nonprofit leaders of color as well? When I went through the process that I went through,
2: um, uh, I actually, I learned the most sitting with young women of color. And these were young women of color that considered me a mentor and we'd have coffee and Little did they know I was learning so much more from them (laughs) than Mm -hmm. they were from me, probably. Um, But over the course of those conversations and through all these readings, I realized, oh, it's not cool to be burdening um, people of color with like, help me be a better white person. Mm -hmm. And so it was from that realization and those learnings that I was like, okay, we need to get together a bunch of white people and we can all learn together, process together, we won't burden other folks. Um, And so I started vetting that idea with uh, other folks. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, I think people were just uncomfortable with that notion of just a bunch of white people sitting in a room. exclusive. Right. Yeah. Right.
3: I'm not sure I've mentioned this out loud before, but I probably would have thought, well, but if we don't have any people of color in our group, then I'm probably not going to learn what I need to learn in a direct way with people actually challenging me and, you know, coming at me and my assumptions getting blown up and all that. Um, And in fact, the very origin of our group taught me something important. Um, uh, Shyla will recall that we met first uh, about a month before the election in 2016. And she asked me if I was interested in being in conversation about this and learning and deep diving deep. And I I said to her, well, it's a great time to be doing this in our country's history because we're about to follow up the first African-American president with the first woman president. (laughs) And then we met again. What a week after the election or something? Very shortly after. Very shortly after, and and I was that guy who was all summer long telling anybody who would listen to me, "Look, don't worry. There's no possible way. Well, now I know that the reason I was so sure that he couldn't win is that I didn't hang out with enough people of color, because I went back later on Mm -hmm. and talked to all my friends. Who are brown and black, and they were like, "Oh no, we weren't that surprised. We thought this was definitely possible."
2: When we had coffee that second time, um, and this was, it really was just a few days after the election, and I was not in a good place. Um, and the first thing you said was, "How are you doing?" Uh, and to me, it showed that um, you know, for for a privileged white man, you know, a, a tall privileged white man, that you um, you were in a place where you knew that it wasn't about you, and you needed to check in with me. Yeah, Um, which is
3: wrapped up in all of this work. Thank you for that. The group, you know,
0: talks about diversity, equity and inclusion and liberation. And I've got a separate question about the liberation part. But how do you all define diversity, equity and inclusion?
1: Well, I think it's a really it's a really important question, but it really comes down to uh, an analysis in terms of what's broken, and what are some of the issues that we're here to try to define? And so we have certain definitions around diversity, which includes like broadening the scope in terms of who is sitting at the table, of uh, the kinds of, of you know the kinds of backgrounds that people are coming coming together with. But there's an idea the the basic concept of of inclusion is creating an environment where people feel like they could sit around the table where it's, a, it's, it's not an environment that alienates folks and makes people feel like they, like they can't really be done. And so like proactive efforts are going to do to make sure that inclusion happens. The idea of equity is something different and is a step in understanding where power comes from and what is actually at work in a system of racial injustice in our society and looking at how white supremacy and white supremacy culture impacts our society and having an analysis that says for equity to take place, we need to be doing proactive efforts, not only to just make sure that people feel comfortable sitting around the table, but how are we centering the power and resources and voice and decision making um, at various levels of folks that are that have the greatest level of need? The concept of liberation is one that evolved from that, which is saying if we take that one step further and said, instead of just saying we as an organization function to try to correct these types of issues and we're listening to folks and we're creating those environments where we not only have, let's say, a diverse staff or diverse board of directors, but we're actually practically not only partnering with community, but putting their voice and power at the center of our decision-making and making sure that our systems are accountable to community in a different way. That construct is one that we've been grappling with as we look at how race and racial injustice that permeates everything in our society really comes to bear. And the idea of liberation is really about that. And how are we moving further along that spectrum? In fact, we will joke in our team about how diversity is the least of our conversations. Mm-hmm. It's actually too basic for us to be able to talk about. Even inclusion and saying, like, well, that's fine. But really, the conversations that we're having... Um, on a frequent basis, not only in our space together, but in a lot of other spaces is being able to talk about and normalize these conversations about how this system that says, hey, this is the way things are, this is how they should be. Um, And what are we doing to try to change, try to change how we, uh, how we have dialogues and how we bring people into power, into conversations about, um, about uh, our work and how we show up with our positional power in different ways. And we're analyzing, you know, in our own ways, like how we operate with privilege and, and how we
3: don't. We know what happens when you don't do that, right? As the uh, head of a nonprofit is that you recruit board members uh, who are um, people of color and they don't stick around.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And right. that's one way that shows up. I, I'm the least articulate about this, but the idea of, of, of decentering power and, and shifting power, in a, is, you need to do this so deliberately because white supremacy culture which is built into the fabric of our country in ways that I began learning when Shiloh invited me to this conversation. I, I knew some of it, but I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. And um, and the thing about white supremacy culture is that it's working exactly the way it was designed to work. And so it's going to take a lot of work to dismantle it bit by bit, piece by piece. It starts in here, in our in our in ourselves, and then goes into the organizations we lead, and then it's the coalitions we build, and it's hopefully the community at some point, but, um, this system was designed very deliberately yeah. over a long period of time to do exactly what it does. I appreciate Jay Smooth's video.
0: That's gone viral a bit, right? It's just about, you know, this isn't a one and done. It's not a check the box training that we all receive, but it's, you know, we need to be able to say to each other, Hey, you have a little racism in your teeth. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, I quoted that at a panel I was on recently and I had several younger folks, people of color come up to me and say, what was that video again? Where is that? You know, I just think there's a hunger for us to have permission to be comfortable or maybe a little uncomfortable, but be able to talk about it, to have the vocabulary and to have the language to talk about it. And different organizations are on different, you know, spectrums, right, in terms of where they're at
1: in their exploration and journey and evolution of this, for sure. It, in particular, it's a challenge for those of us that are in positions of power to be able to grapple with that because we were able to get our positions of power because we know how to navigate these systems the system. of white, white supremacy, how we're able to talk in a particular way, right in a particular way, be able to uh, show up in different spaces to be able to have these different things that give us permission to be able to be in these particular spaces so especially when i hear about young people that that are that are struggling with these issues and don't feel like they have an opportunity to be able to talk about it, explore it because they affect they feel it they know it they experience it and and it affects all of us in different ways it's really important for there to be those places and spaces like like this particular network where we're actually talking about it and how it affects our positional power Um, in how we're able to curate different kinds of environments within those places and spaces that we exist and exert power as well. And it's a challenge to be able to do so. One of the things that we started in 2006 at Sacred Heart was showing up for Racial Justice, which is a group of people, primarily white people, that are actually working on unpacking how, how whiteness exists in their lives, how white supremacy culture exists in their lives. And they work on that. But I think the difference about this space is that you have not only you have white leaders, but also leaders of color that are trying to understand and unpack how we're able to deal with these issues in not just in our lives and our families and our work, but but in our positions of power and authority within a larger social sector.
2: Right. And, and I wanted to also um, talk about a, a, a real life example of how this stuff shows up. And I think that's that's what's helped me the most with this group is. Being, and more cogn- yeah. Yeah. And being more sensitive and cognizant to where racism is showing up or patriarchy or whatever, you know, whatever um, it may be, the biases and racism isms that are out there. Um, so right now, uh, my board is going to be, our board chair is rolling off um, and uh, stepping down. Or So the vice chair probably will get uh, elected to chair. Sure. It means we need to backfill a vice chair role. Now, what we could do is simply put out a call to the entire board and say, hey, we have this opening. Who would like to play this role? Um, Knowing what we know about um, men and women and people of color and white people, probably the folks who are most comfortable speaking up and saying, I could lead this organization, are going to be um, white men. and I love white men, first of all. Let me make that very clear. <laughs> just to be clear. I have one at home, and he's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, and so we know that, and yet there may be a young woman of color on the board who would make a much better vice chair. And so it's just that very process of, like, do I just put out a general call to the board?
0: Right.
2: Um, or do I do a better job curating, knowing what I know about how people behave and how the system works? Yeah. It's, it's that kind of stuff that we as leaders... Um, I've, be, I've learned to become more aware.
0: I know that the three of you and other folks that are a part of the Affinity Group have done some deep work with your boards, you know, with staff, with policies. How have you established a culture? Have you successfully established a culture in your organization that allows for ongoing work without people getting defensive and shutting down?
3: <laughs> I've lost a board member or two. over right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I have. And that's okay. Um, because the work's too important, and we know that not everyone is going to be down for it. Right. Okay. Um, that's not the worst thing in the world, uh, but it is hard. And, um, and I don't know that I've built that culture on my board. We're working on it.
2: At the Bike Coalition, we have kind of three main constituencies. We have our board, we have staff, and we have our membership, the people who are out there who actually ride. Um, and each of these are at different levels of their evolution on thinking about this stuff on staff have been working and continue to work to develop a a culture where, just as you said, we can talk about really hard subjects and people aren't going to freak out and say, oh my gosh, someone just called me racist, um, because that's like the worst thing uh, a white person Mm. can experience, or one of the worst things that a white person can experience. So I knew when, when we were starting this work, based on my own personal experience, that if we didn't proactively and intentionally set up a culture where people felt comfortable, the default was going to be what we all do and that is just to not talk about it yeah um, and then in, what you get is the perpetuation of the system that we have so um, on the advice of again uh by east bay leadership they suggested that um, we uh on a regular basis and so we do this at our staff meeting we have a standing item on our staff meeting that says how is diversity equity and inclusion showing up in your work And before we got to how the issue is framed right now, we started with talk about how you yourself have perpetuated racism, um, you know, some sort of sexism. Expose yourself. Talk about somewhere where you felt a little bit ashamed and do that in front of the group. And the advice to me was you as the executive director need to start that and lead that and show vulnerability. So we do that every Monday. Um, this past Monday, we had a great session where a couple folks confessed and it's created this culture where it's okay. You know, we make mistakes. We mess up. We're normal. Like we were brought up in this system yeah. and it, and we talk about it.
0: Poncho, anything to add to that just in terms of the culture you've created within the organization?
1: Well, I think we have a an interesting dynamic at Sacred Heart because it's Primarily, for most of its history, it had been a white-led organization that was serving primarily Latinx population. And over the last decade, it's actually changed to be mostly a Latinx, you know, led and staffed organization serving a you know a continuing expanding population. And I think the dynamics of that were really really challenging to be able to look at how do we how do we see race kind of playing itself out in our environment. We had conversations about how, uh, as we pivoted as an organization to be not just about direct service, but about looking at social justice and root causes, what was missing from that analysis from what was missing from those conversations was a, an analysis about race, because we would use immigration status, for example, as a proxy for race to be able to talk about how we should be just privileging some over others and understanding that, that the reality of how, um, how, uh, how folks are discriminated against because of their uh, because uh, because they are people of color, or, but more specifically because of their immigration status. And we said, no, we have to be more explicit about how about how race, about racial injustice, about how anti blackness shows up in all of our spaces, and how we're able to do that, and actually start really reckoning with that, and being more vocal about it, knowing that we're going to lose board members, knowing that we're going to lose donors, and we have Takes courage. knowing that knowing yeah. that we have to be able to do it. But it's not just about courage; it's about Owning up to the way that we actually are experiencing privilege in, in our lives, in our culture, in our society, the way that we stand out, what it means for us to be able to bring that analysis into our thinking and not just trying to play it safe and having comfortable conversations. Because one of the elements of white supremacy culture is this idea that we're going to protect people and make sure everyone feels safe. Make sure everyone feel like these com- these conversations that some people don't want to talk about um, are ones that we need to protect those that are in power and not have those difficult conversations. And it's actually the opposite. We need to be bringing up those things, looking at ourselves, being vulnerable, showing up and, and talking about, I screwed up this. And I, and we do that ourselves in our leadership roles and talking about it, but not, But to some degree, I think the greatest thing that we do is not make it a big deal. Like it is... We're going to have the one conversation once a year with my board or my staff around something, but it becomes part of our regular conversations during our weekly staff meetings, during our you know our board meetings. Every board meeting, we have conversations. Where we're reading an article, doing an exercise, talking about this, and understanding how privilege, how white supremacy, and how patriarchy we show up in our work and in ourselves, and how we exercise power so that we can rethink
3: differently about how we want to how we want to behave. This morning for example, at my staff meeting, I I opened up with, uh, hey, you know, something happened on uh, on Thursday that I think is worth talking about. And I told the story about how someone on a microphone in a room full of hundreds of people used a term uh, that was uh, clearly offensive to some people. And, and about how easy it is to do that and about how you don't have to be a bad person to be part of the problem. and And, and I try to do that as often as I can. And I try to yeah. get out of the way so that my staff can then talk about that and, and it's still interesting to me and this happens a lot I think to white people who begin to have these conversations because I'll have a staff person invariably after we have a conversation like this come into my office Chris I just wanted to say that was so great that you did that you are so wonderful so we keep I get, keep, I get rewarded for, for behaving this way in a way that a person of color would not be rewarded and Ironically, it's people of color who white people often go to to say, oh, teach me about this, tell me about this. And, and we expect to be called out uh, by people who will not be rewarded for that. Yeah. Uh, but so, so in many ways, it's easier for me to have these conversations than it is for other to have these conversations, right? You
1: making sure that you're articulating these things that I don't have to in those spaces, it creates space for me to be able to be my more authentic self for me not to carry that burden into those different places and spaces that you're able to operate. And therefore, when I call, uh, call somebody into a conversation about that was difficult, that was problematic. Um, that something that someone says that I'm not just saying, well, he's just looking at it through a lens like the race card or he's being problematic or he's being difficult. And, uh, and, and I suffer the repercussions of that in terms of, People say, well, who do I feel more comfortable with? Would I feel more comfortable working with or providing resources to, to you know, Pontial and Sacred Heart or to, you know, Chris and, and the Valley you know, Valley Medical Center Foundation? You know, like those types of things become part of the dynamic. So you being able to do that is an important thing. And looking at that as being your responsibility is an important uh, dimension to be able to
3: add to our mix. I couldn't have done it 10 years ago. In fact, I know I wouldn't because at the Gold Lake ALF retreat, I was called out by a fellow classmate when I said something that made her very upset. And she was upset enough that she was getting really emotional calling me out uh, and calling me in. And my immediate reaction was to become defensive Mm -hmm. and try to explain myself. And it was this moment where I realized, like, that was so awful. Why did I have to do that? And it's the first time that I ever really looked at myself as like, oh, right fragility. I have that. That's a thing that I need to to do something about. So this is a constant evolution, right? Shiloh, you've actually you know, said very
0: publicly, like, please call me out, please check me when I say something that might be where I mean, if I stepped in it or I've said something that's offensive or, um, and and you're super, com- you know, you're comfortable with that, you're willing. You, I you didn't can... start that way, I started, yeah, it's I started where Chris was. It, was, oh, it yeah. was very
2: painful to be called out. And how's that going now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it still can be, I mean, it's never that pleasant to be told you're wrong, especially publicly. I got to a point where, um, and again, I'm going to credit the by Keith Bay leadership, where um, in their coaching and mentoring of me, they were like, hey, when someone criticizes you or calls you out, consider it a gift and say thank you. Won't you help me understand this? He's like, look because people get really upset about people calling people out. And, you know, I I would say it's not always appropriate to call someone out. You want to you want to call them in in a certain way. You want to maybe pick up the phone and say, hey, let's have a dialogue first. But there are plenty of people in the world for whom this these are the tools that they have access to and they wield. Um, And it took me a long time to understand that I can pick up the phone and I can call the mayor of San Jose and he's going to call me back. Um, There are plenty of people in the world that don't have that kind of access to power, and so they wield the tools that they have, one of which might be calling people out. Those of us who have access to power need to understand we need to be okay with people who get a little bit tired, that they've been trying and trying and trying to change the system for a long time, and being civil and sitting down and having a dialogue it hasn't been working so they're going to try or something else waiting for
3: three and a half hours to, to use testify. their two <laughs> minutes of time that they're allowed in this organized civil like well we let the community have their say then we went and did what we planned on mm-hmm. doing anyway um there, there are times when that Incredible, great example of white supremacy culture just is never going to work for people who don't have the power.
0: And our own president, right, in a recent statement on call-out culture, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. Obama continued by saying, calling out other people on social media for not being woke is not activism and it's not bringing about change. Do you agree?
1: What I agree with is that people saying like, hey, let's just call people out and then we'll feel better about ourselves. That's true. But one of the things that we've become complacent in as a culture is wanting to try to protect those in power by trying to message things in a particular way. It's like, well, you're being, if, if you speak out in too strong a way, you are alienating those and alienating potential allies. But it, but the truth, is, this is how those in power protect themselves. We're able to kind of continue to set the terms of the debate. What's appropriate to be angry or upset about and when we do that, we don't really have those uncomfortable and difficult conversations that we need to have about like who has power, who defines it, who's it wielded for, what are we trying to accomplish here? who is not at the table um, and that's something that we have to be very, very conscious of as we're making these kinds of these kinds of choices and decisions, especially when we get into this idea of like let's police civility. Let's talk about civility as part of our popular culture. I actually think it's time for us to be able to, you know, to actually have, um, to understand why we do the things that we do and, and, um, and try to find space for, uh, for being able to push ourselves and being vulnerable and being able to move people into those uncomfortable places and spaces because we don't, we don't
2: learn. To civilize has some pretty, um, uh, negative connotations. Who defined what civil is, is white people. And so unless you're able to behave and converse with me in a way that I deem acceptable, I am not going to sit down and have a
3: conversation. With you. And in fact, what I'll do is I'll have you arrested. Mm-hmm. I will have you removed from this chamber. I will not have this conversation. You are not allowed in my building. Like, wow. Wow. Because that is what happens. I mean, the other part of his statement had to do with the fact that there are good
1: people that still have flaws, and I think that's mm-hmm. that's part yeah. of what we have to yeah. understand in each other. But uh, it, to be and, more
2: forgiving is what I think he was saying.
1: Yeah, and, and not to look at things as being as being you know have this polarity of like there's good and there's bad, and then and and to feel uh, and to feel like you always stand on the side of good to understand that we all carry within us the good and the bad and how it. But I think that's where it breaks down for me is that we have to be strong and firm at being able to call out the things that are, aren't are working and, and understand, especially some of those that are that are in that, that culture of like pointing the finger at those in power and saying, why are you not doing something about this? That's not an unhealthy thing because that's how the discourse moves forward. And it's a reflection of people being left out of a process, people being on the other side of it. On the other hand, those that have privilege, and they say, I am woke or I am liberal or progressive and, and, and I and I feel better about myself for ha- saying that person is, is, uh, is less yeah. perfect than me and not understanding the, the important work that goes into understanding and checking your own privilege. And I would agree with President Obama, that's not activism. Okay. Yeah.
0: Chris, I want to ask you a question just about allyship. The Black Kitchen Cabinet here in Santa Clara County defines it as an ally, as a person of a social group that stands up and supportive members of another social group, resulting in a mutual benefit from our collective efforts to create a world that treats each of us with respect, equality and dignity. Is this part of the commitment you made to the work and how has it changed you and how has it changed the way people view you?
3: I'm now at a place where I'm actually irritated by the fact that people look at me and go, wow, Chris Wilder is willing to say that and he's willing to call this stuff out and he's willing to talk mm-hmm. about it. What a wonderful ma- – I'm, I'm, if, if that's useful because then people listen to me, then fine. But it is the commitment that I made early on when Shiloh and, and I met about this. If I learn a lot over the next several years and I don't do anything about it, then it's nearly meaningless – Um, So so my role, I think, is to have these uncomfortable conversations, especially with white men and bring them in to what otherwise may never be a conversation that they have, because if we don't do something about this, you know how it's going to affect white men? Not very much. Maybe not at all. They'll be fine. And so it's going to take work. And so I do my best when I am at my best to call people out. Call people in, talk about these things with groups of white men, and um, where I fail are times when I'm invited into a you know a, an all day strategy session on DEIL work or or a study session or a seminar, and I look around the room and this happens all the time, Suzanne. Yeah. I look around the room, I'm the only white man in the room. Boy, have I failed because you know who needs to be in that room? People who look like me. Yeah. And when they're not there, then I've made a mistake.
2: And you're the person who can get them there.
3: Right. That's exactly the point. I've got this opportunity, right? You know, I'm a beer drinking, golf playing, you know, straight white man surrounded by people who look and act like me. and And it's easy to call somebody out when they're about to say a racist joke. Um, it's, it's better and more effective when you can call someone in for just a whole, you know, set of thoughts that they have, that they've had forever. And if nobody challenges them on it, then they're just going to keep having them and it'll be fine for them. That, that the, the Black Kitchen Cabinet statement that you just read is very interesting because it says um, that we're looking for, you know, an ally as someone who, who, who engages in these kinds of things for mutual benefit. I don't know necessarily long term how white men necessarily benefit from this work and they have to do it anyway in my view the, the moral imperative mm-hmm. we just we just have to at least i do it's not pie just because you have more rights do- doesn't mean that i have fewer rights in a world of finite resources mm-hmm. uh finite leadership opportunities and positions there are a lot of white people who are just scared they're scared of this yeah and and that's where so much of this comes from anyway so you know what? Maybe maybe they're even right. Maybe if we do this work well, there'll be fewer opportunities for white men and there'll be fewer money and there'll be fewer Porsches and there'll be fewer whatever. Uh, and that just kind of has to be OK. I'm sorry, it just does. Because things have been so wrong and so bad and so screwed up for so long, hundreds of years in this country. So I just don't want to not do anything about it anymore.
1: I mean, I don't think about it as I- allyship as much anymore because I think about it as being co-conspirators in trying to dismantle a system that is really hurting us all. The fact that there's some that are privileged over others because of the background that they came from that can't persist if we're going to be able to grow our community, our economy, being able to actually make sure that we're able to, you know, prepare another generation. We're just falling behind by stupid decisions that we're making. Why are we spending that much less? On these kids, why are we creating these um, these barriers and pathways, and you know, putting people into a criminal justice system in these particular ways? Why are we making land use decisions that are basically saying we are not going to let like anyone that has a low income they happen to be you know, mostly mostly you know uh, black and brown can't live in this community anymore? Those kinds of decisions are shooting ourselves in the foot over the long term, and if we are not able to have a courageous conversation about how our perceptions of race are at the core of that then we aren't really building anything.
0: What does grace and forgiveness look like
3: in this journey? What a great question. (laughs) The the very term, calling someone in rather than calling them out, is important. Allowing someone to be upset when you've done it and be their friend anyway. Um, Because people have done that for me. We're all flawed, we're all imperfect, and so if we remember that, when we are having these difficult conversations with people, you know, whether it's my dad or, you know, some guy I just met, there's a way to do it that I think is from a place of kindness. You know, we can be real and authentic and all that, but we don't have to ever be unkind, do we?
1: The concept of forgiveness that I think is most important is the forgiveness of ourselves. My success, even as a Chicano, you know, Chicano male, if I'm able to talk white, act white, not offend people, like behave in a particular way, I'm able to be able to benefit in this society. And realizing that that complicity that I have uh, is something that can be very, very heavy. And how do I understand my role within it? How I've been, How I've been able to benefit from it, but simultaneously work on deconstructing that? The first thing that I had to do and that I have to do every day is forgive myself for why am I the one that's a survivor of this when so many other kids that I grew up with did not? And how do I live in that space? And rather than just aspiring to be like everyone, to to be uh, someone that I am not, that's something that society will not let me be, is to own who I am, understand what responsibility I have, and bring people into the process of fixing it.
2: I think I spent way too many years after um, learning more about my unearned advantage in this world um, feeling really, really bad about myself and the fact that I went through life for 40 years not knowing this as a progressive um, woman who got an environmental studies degree from UC Santa Cruz, right? Like I am... (laughs) How did I miss this? I'm not racist. Of (laughs) course I'm not racist. I shop at Whole Foods. Um, (laughs) I'm a vegetarian, you know? Um, So I think, I, I mean, I just want to underscore what Boncho just said, and that is, it took me a long time to get to a point where I could just be okay with the fact that I had been complicit not knowing this stuff existed. We have a responsibility that I think often goes overlooked. When we feel uncomfortable, we'll say, why am I feeling uncomfortable? Let me, let me dig into that a little bit. Poncho, like, I'm feeling this way. What's that about? Let me understand that. Assuming Poncho is willing to have that conversation with me, which Poncho is my, you know, more or less my accountability buddy who um, on a daily basis is responsible for telling me how racist I am.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> just reminding <laughs> Lovingly. Yeah. Shiloh, how have you been racist today? Morning like,
3: text, to exactly. Yes. Like this. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny, you know, what is the appropriate civil response to another unarmed black young yeah, man being exactly. shot. And if white people feel bad sometimes when they begin to learn some of these things, yeah. you know, some of, for me, sometimes it's just sort of boo fucking who, You know, oh, you're uncomfortable. I'm terribly sorry. You know, do you know what it's like to live as a black person in this country? I don't. You know, but I understand it's Really, really hard sometimes. Chris is like the punk rock of the C.E.A.P.I.O., well, <laughs> and I would expect no it less. Was, but, but it was exactly bands like Minor Threat and Seven yeah. Seconds that taught me, as a teenager, you don't have to feel guilty and bad about being white, but you do have to feel some responsibility.
0: For senior fellows, others that are listening to this podcast, like where do you start, Mm -hmm. right? And that are interested but maybe afraid to explore this Mm -hmm. subject, to explore work in this area for themselves and organizations. What's your go to read piece of advice for them? I have an answer
2: to this question. I I struggle with it. It's like how do you invite people into a conversation about this stuff without triggering the immediate defensiveness that is going to shut them down and make them unable to then take take those next steps? Um, and so I have some answers and it's still really, really hard to get people to be open to these conversations. So the video that you mentioned earlier, because I think that um, lays the foundation for people to understand it's okay, we're flawed, you know, racism, racism isn't something you just like, you know, you go to a training session and you're done, you know, this is an ongoing thing We're you know, we're constantly flossing our teeth and trying to get racism out of our, our teeth. Um, so that's the first one. And then the one that I felt was really um, catalytic for me was, um, and just Robin DiAngelo is wonderful. She, um, she is credited with coining um, the term white fragility. And she wrote a book called White Fragility. And I think that is a wonderful on-ramp to um, folks like me just seeing things in a more real way. And you read that book and you're like, Oh, crap, I've done that. Oh, shoot, I behave that way, too. And, oh, there I am again in that book being super defensive. Um, so, We're yeah.
0: all flawed. <laughs> We're all flawed.
2: And she lays it out. She yep. has a wonderful That's way a of talking to white people and, and breaking things down in a way that I think people can hear. She's like my, my white woman whisperer. She's
1: been really <laughs> wonderful. I yeah. think for folks that are examining how these issues show up in their work and in yeah. their cultures is... Uh, Timo Kuhn's White Supremacy Culture article. And it's one that really examines like looking at these different vectors of like, this is how institutions are and how they function in ways that feel invisible to us, but being able to understand that there may be alternatives and ways of
3: deconstructing that in a way that can lead us on a path towards kind of equity and liberation. And going back to 2014, if you haven't yet read Ta-Nehisi Coates' The Case for Reparations, it's not as much about reparations as it is understanding exactly what white supremacy culture and government sponsored racism looks like and where it shows up. And it didn't show up in 1865. It didn't show up in 1900. This is stuff that was happening very, very recently and in many communities still happening in lots of different ways. And and I know that most of the folks listening to this they have come this far. God bless them. If they've come this far, they probably have already read this. Um, But fine. If you haven't, read it. Uh, And then You know, underneath articles like that, especially if you're reading them online, read the next one that pops up and read that one and the one after that and the one after that. I'm grateful to the work of
0: this group. We've got a learning library on the ALF website, too, with a lot of different resources. I think these articles and books that you've named are are listed in there, too. You guys, it's been a really amazing journey, not just for you all. I know I hear about, but from our, our staff as well. And so we're just really privileged to be on it with you. And uh, grateful that you've all decided to lean into the work and look at what you started. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting Networks for Good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.